Hi and welcome to the Machine Ethics Podcast. This time we have a bonus episode from OrgCon in London, which is this year's Open Rights Group Conference. We've also been recording our next interview podcast, which will be out very shortly. So look forward to that with Rob McAlgrove. As this podcast is a pop shop podcast from OrgCon, expect very choppy audio quality. We start with a short snippet from Edward Snowden. You can find his longer talk on the Org YouTube channel, which I'll link to on the description on the website. I catch Jack Paulson, ex-Google employee, talking about whistleblowing from Google. I talk to several attendees about AI, ethics, human rights, and the rights in the digital age. I meet one of the directors from the ICO, and we talk about how the ICO is looking into this idea of AI and big data, and how they can guide companies positively in the direction the ICO want to see us going. I also talk to Vert EU, which is a partnership between different organisations and universities from around Europe to collaborate on IoT projects and ethics. To learn more about the Machine Ethics Podcast or to listen to previous episodes, go to www.machine-ethics.net. You can also contact us at hello at machine-ethics.net or tweet us at machine underscore ethics. You can also find us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash machine ethics, where you'll find thoughts videos, uh, reading lists, more conversation with like-minded people, longer podcasts, etc. So we'll start with Edward Snowden. Thank you. Uh, a large a very specific uh, level, because they had to, it was expensive, they had to put people on the streets to follow you, to, to see who you're meeting in protests, to put people behind you in cafes, uh, teams you know, in cars, uh, teams on foot, uh, teams at banks of telephones, teams with the service provider. Now this is all been automated so that a single officer, someone like myself, could come in to work in the morning in Hawaii and just get an entire report of everything that someone did online, everywhere their phone went, uh, every text message they sent, every website uh, URL that they answered, and it would just be in a beautiful little format. Uh, Therefore, you in the morning because it ran overnight against all of these uh, service providers, all of these interception points around the world. And this is what I want you to think about, these sort of alerting and reconnaissance uh, of people's activities that the state is interested in. Now, in the context of um, what's happened is that the laws have been structured in such a way um, that the U.S. government can make representations to foreign courts uh, to foreign politicians and go, we have rules that say we won't do this. We won't look at you. Uh, we won't scrutinize you unless you're up to no good. You just simply have to trust us that they're being followed. Uh, and in private, in secret, because this information is not shared, even with our closest partners, um, we can look at whatever we want under our own domestic laws because those rules are not truly binding. Um, um, we see that governments increasingly care less and less about rights uh, and care more and more about power. Um, these mass surveillance authorities that were uh, produced allegedly to protect us against terrorism are increasingly being applied against journalists who write critical stories the government doesn't like. They're being applied against uh, immigrants uh, and, and people who are uh, fleeing harm in their countries or seeking a better life. Uh, they're being applied to politically exposed people and dissidents. Um, more broadly, they're just being applied to minorities, whether they're political minorities, ethnic minorities, ideological minorities. Um, these authorities are being used to control and shape and influence the direction of society rather than to protect 
public safety. Uh, that is to say, these programs are being used to um, further state security uh, rather than public security. And when we look at this, uh, I think people get a feeling that things are hopeless, right? Uh, they see things uh, eroding. They see rather than progress in many sectors, we see regress. And this creates a, a sense of paralysis, a kind of despair, like nothing that they do matters. But I want you to look at the larger sweep of what's happening, uh, not just in this one part uh, of the human rights space, uh, but broadly, uh, think about um, people's rights itself, their bodies, uh, to the common good. Um, think about people's ability to vote. Think about people's ability to speak. And think about things like slavery, right? Uh, unfortunately, it still exists in the common world, but we have made tremendous inroads in fighting it and abolishing it and getting rid of it compared to hundreds of years ago, right? And I think very much when we look at these other spaces, um, we tend to get paralyzed in the span of years, in the span of decades, uh, because we very much do face a backlash. Um, these are powerful people uh, with enormous interests uh, who are trying to better their class, uh, their sector, and in some cases their state, right? And yet over the longest span of time, we still win. Life is better than it was. Life is hard now. And this is the challenge given to our generation. We didn't ask for this, but this is what we have. However, it's going to get better, and it's going to get better not because that's natural, not because that's inevitable, not because that's just the way things are. It's going to happen because of people like you. It's the people who fight. It's the people who come in here and care. It's the people who stand up and say something rather than simply believing in something that make these things get better over time. Because yes, we will lose in the next years. Yes, we will lose in the next days, but we will also win. And we will win more over time, over decades, over centuries, and we will lose. And we will do it because we care so much that for us it is a constant task. It is not a job, it's not a career, it's not a conference, it's a way of life. It's a system of beliefs that is sustained not just by the individual, but by the community, by the fact that people like you come together in rooms like this to make things better. And I think over time, you will prove to your children and all the people who come after us, all of our children, that what we did matter, and what we did will be remembered, and that what we did makes the world, um, makes humanity, uh, something that we can be proud of, even if in the moment, even if in the politics of our time, even in the context of these headlines, uh, we realize the dangers are real, but that's why we do what we do. You got the cold face of some of the epic stuff, I guess. Um, I'm having yeah, oh, yeah. A, an angle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but also you have the technology, um, the, the, uh, the chops, let's say, the tech chops. You, you have the skills and the experience on the tech side as well, right? Yeah, I mean, people, there, there's always a sense of never having enough, and there's always like a hierarchy that develops. And uh, unfortunately, yep. you get too into technical chops, and 
essentially nobody feels they have a right to speak because there are more senior people who may disagree with you. And they right. they yes. take the technical expertise and try to convert it into policy expertise. Yeah. Uh, and actually core ethical expertise. <laughs> yeah, which maybe doesn't translate so well. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it turns out they're also making way more money from the thing too. So maybe that colors their, their, yeah. their ethical take. <laughs> do, you, do you think on that, is anyone doing that well? Like, is anyone coming out and going, these principles actually do make sense and do reflect what maybe the company is about and what they do internally? Or is that just kind of... Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of very smart things have been said, and I don't think I'm going to say anything much smarter, but I could point to a, a very interesting uh, exchange. So I was at a, uh, an ethics uh, conference at, at UCSD on uh, the, the ethics and policy implications of big data. Right. And what was fairly unique about it was that it was, it was uh, software developers from tech, it was lawyers, it was social scientists, mm -hmm. and the, the insight from lawyers that is obvious in hindsight is when they look at a contract, the first thing they look at is the accountability mechanism, or what's the enforcement mechanism. Mm -hmm. And what we've not seen in any of these tech statements is any enforcement or even adjudication uh, yep. system. And so um, one thing that I and many others I think have found is that if you actually try to internally litigate on these, uh, you know, so-called principles. Mm -hmm. For example, Google's AI principles, commitment not to design technologies whose purpose contravenes widely accepted principles of international law and human rights. Mm -hmm. You find that the actual adjudication mechanism, well, one, it's not even really well defined, but roughly speaking, it's going to be your management chain. And at some point, any of those people can just say, no, I disagree. Yeah. And even if you feel even if you know it's a clear violation, mm -hmm. even if the entire public community has, has decided this is unacceptable, they can just say no. And so what are you left with? Like, what does the principle actually mean yep. if you can clearly articulate a violation and there is no way to enforce its its application? Yep. So you might as well have not said the principle in the first place in that case. Right. I think it's by default, it's marketing. And mm -hmm. not to say there might not be good intentions, but everybody's principles change when there's immense amounts of money or personal relationships at stake. And I, I don't think that's, that's um, you know, uh, unpredictable. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. a, a good example would be like sexual harassment allegations. If you, you see someone else be quiet, it's pretty obvious it's wrong, but if it's your friend that did it, then you're gonna think hard. And you know, maybe you side the right way in the end, but it, yeah. it's a, Things are hard when it's your own uh, relationships and resources being um, uh, put at stake. And I think one has to understand just how much money and resources are at stake for the tech companies. Like if you talk about the ethics of entering a market like China, I mean, that's, you know, that could be a quarter's growth. <laughs> so fundamentally as a CEO, that might qualitatively change what your relationship is with the company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
you mentioned um, this idea of ethics getting bounded around in different places um, <laughs> during your talk um, in the questions session. Um, you were referring to a talk uh, that Dame Wendy Hall made yes. Bri briefly. Yes. Um, do you think that this public, by the way, the, the the conference was Chatham House Rules, but she published her talk. She published her talk. Correct. <laughs> thank you. Yes. So you mentioned that she has this kind of relative relativism sort of thing going on, um, right. the relative ethics. Yeah. Do you agree with that sort of stance? Yeah, so before the conference even started, I was very concerned because the entire call only talked about ethics and there was no mention of human rights or what I understand is the more European take of fundamental rights. And so the, the, the obvious pitfall, and I, I would quote uh, Philip Alston on this, who's the, the UN Special Rapporteur on Poverty, um, who said, you know, the whole reason human rights exists is to prevent relativism and to have enforcement mechanisms. Like, that is what international ethics yeah. is when you do it properly. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, a rabbit hole one could go down of, of you know, how globally equitable uh, human rights is, but mm -hmm. I think at the moment this is what we have, and until we can replace it, um, I don't think, you know, the... The, the traditional global south uh, argument is is sufficient to say we should no longer talk about human rights. Yeah. Um, by all means, let's talk about a replacement. But until then, yeah, you can upgrade <laughs> it, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and maybe some human rights experts are screaming right now. But uh, I, I think, yeah, there, there's a, a deep understanding that ethics, almost by definition, is something you debate that's mm -hmm. relative, that is that is not uh, enforced. In with law, mm -hmm. uh, it's more of a social contract. Yeah, um, and I think there's a there's a place for that, but the foundation that should be underlined and not implicit is mm -hmm. human rights exists yeah. and it's important in international contexts. And that that concern was just completely borne out in in this talk, mm. which um, said ethics is relative. We need to accept that China doesn't value. Uh, freedom of speech and that their concern is a revolution and we just have to accept that that's going to be the thing they're going to try to prevent mm -hmm. which is another way of saying they will suppress any political organizing and democracy which now you're, you're sort of openly admitting you are okay with building technology to suppress mm -hmm. political organizing and dissent yeah. for such a nation and I, I find that um, uh, a little hard to swallow um, as well as, you know, I'll also stand up for my extremely talented um, ethics colleagues and mm -hmm. social scientist colleagues who were described as uh, easy to hire and that, you know, the real challenge is hiring uh, AI professors. Yeah. And so you should uh, just accept, you know, the argument was you should accept that ethics is cheap and uh, hard talent is the thing to, to pay attention to. And I just found, you know, not only on the, the, you know, throwing out ethics, not only on the throwing out freedom of speech, but also just the degradation of people who focus on social issues as uh, easy to hire and cheap, I found just uh, it's difficult. <laughs> yeah, it sounds to me quite derogatory, right? That's yes. like, you're saying that they are uh, not as useful, not as needed not as you know yeah um, something you can look at down the road yeah yeah uh, that is unfortunate yeah so to, but to engage in sort of proper debate and always talk about the best version of someone's argument mm -hmm. uh, there was a, a principle which I think was pretty widely uh, agreed upon in the audience which was that right now Europe is a customer and it needs to become a driver as well and as long as you're a customer 
you will be uh, subject to the ethics of whoever's technology you need to purchase. And right. I think I, I actually fully agree with that. Uh, and I think there there is a case to be made that if you only talk about ethics, you're in trouble. I mm -hmm. agree, but to say that you know uh, everything is relative, I, I view as actively harmful. Yeah. Um, so I think Canada's in a similar position. I haven't heard mm -hmm. Canadian discussions on you know, what it means to reinvigorate its tech scene as opposed to just uh, adopt American technology. Mm -hmm. um, but surely, you know, with the, the protests on like sidewalk labs, we see that there is a viewpoint that there, you are being forced to, not without pushback, but yeah. you're, you're being asked to adopt the privacy stances of, of foreign companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in terms of what you're doing now, um, like how does all this thinking come into play and with what you're doing and, and going forward with your organization? Yeah, so for about eight, nine months, I have spent a lot of time learning and by no means am I an expert, but I definitely know a lot better what it means to speak out and how you do that. Mm. And partly that's because other people helped me. Um, and there is a question of how is it that you enable a safe space for someone to reach out to someone who understands what the process actually is? Mm -hmm. uh, what does it mean to be effective? How do you talk to a reporter and practice? Like, what can you negotiate? You know, I think is a rough rule trying to negotiate on background with, you know, certain quotes mm -hmm. on the record is is a pretty fair default stance, but you know, yeah. uh, journalists tend not to uh, explain the rules of engagement. You know, uh, I, I had I did have one explain it to me, which mm -hmm. led to immense amounts of respect. <laughs> nice. yeah. um, and, and I worry that you know this is actually a, a critical issue because when I talk to tech workers at various companies who are uh, concerned, uh, they usually stop short of speaking out because they think you basically are public or you are not. Right. And they, they don't, it's not sort of um, in their instinct that you can reach out to the press and be on background or off the record mm -hmm. and that there is still immense value in that. And, yeah. you know, for example, the original uh, Dragonfly story that came out was someone who to this day, I don't even know who they are. Like, mm. uh, there can be incredible anonymity with incredible impact. Yeah. Um, and to, to really convince tech workers that this is an option and that, you know, and even if you do go public, I got many job offers from many major tech companies. And mm -hmm. by job offer, mm -hmm. I mean they asked if I'd interview. Right. Uh, but as much as close as you can get to a job offer yeah. in a short period of time. Uh, and that was a huge surprise to me. And I, I think um, blacklisting isn't actually a thing if you're speaking out on principle, except yeah. maybe at the company you spoke out against. And that other companies understand, you know, in so much as you're actually speaking on principle as opposed mm -hmm. to just disclosing trade secrets. Yes, yeah, I, there's the distinction there, yes. I guess, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, whistleblowing versus leaking, and I, I think yeah. um, if you walk that line, the, the notion of a blacklist is much less rare. That doesn't mean somebody's not gonna get skittish. Uh, that you might cross that line with them, given mm -hmm. that your your press relationships. But um, you know, on the whole, I've actually found it, it's been pretty liberating as as opposed to constraining. And course, and, and what you're doing now is partly um, enabling people who might want to speak out. Or, or well, I mean, to even assume press attention is the mm -hmm. only way I think is uh, uh, 
is can be damaging. Mm -hmm. um, and, and partly that's why I think just thinking of only speaking to a reporter is also um, a, a problem, because. You know, if I was to give a brief overview, I think um, if, if one looks at the history of extremely impactful uh, protests and uh, organizing, uh, one can look at an organization like ACT UP, which was the, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which you know, I think pretty objectively saved millions of lives through accelerating FDA approval of AIDS medication. Their tactics were pretty clear, which was um, always have people on both the inside and the outside of an organization. Mm -hmm. where the people on the inside are organized and consistent in their messaging. They're very reasonable people who you can negotiate in a very calm manner with. And mm -hmm. then there are people on the outside who act more as the, the radical attention seekers and who are right. more aggressive in their criticism. And when you couple you know, these two sides of a campaign, mm -hmm. uh, you, you have um, you know, not only public attention, which can be used to validate and make the, the internal campaign look more reasonable, yeah. <laughs> you, nice. you can also yeah. have cross fertilization. You know, th yeah. these things are symbiotic as opposed to competing. And I think most mm -hmm. people want to think of these as a, a competition because I think the usual framing here is is someone is a tech worker at a tech company, and if someone says you should speak out, they may feel personally attacked because they feel their integrity is being impugned because of the fact that they chose to stay and remain at the company. Right, right. By no means do I, do I feel that way, but I think there should be people on both sides and yep. we should prevent um, firewalling of, of core ethical decisions. Yeah, um, yeah. And encourage uh, intercompany inter uh, organizing tactics being yep. shared and disseminated. So if someone listening to this podcast maybe works for a organization that maybe they are excited to be working for and they love their job but they don't necessarily agree with all the practices um, mm -hmm. and that some of those practices maybe are somewhat damaging to civil society let's say and they acknowledge that they don't necessarily need to quit their job and, and be bereft tomorrow um, they could you know they have options and they could maybe you know slowly help make the change that they want to see within the organization as well right yeah yeah and, and if they do want to reach out I think it's important to at a high level distinguish which category of criticism or, or concern you have. And I think somewhat of a hierarchy of you know, uh, human rights, if it applies, you should preserve that, that understanding and that, that framing. Um, there's also you know, more abstract ethical complaints, which I think is, is a, you know, if it isn't a human rights concern, then you try to keep it in ethics and then sort of the the, the, the no man's land is if it's just a pure political complaint, then right. I, I think you're, you're gonna have a hard time if you, you're just speaking out on those grounds. Um, and so, you know, if it is a human rights uh, complaint, then you should definitely reach out to human rights organizations. Mm -hmm. They are used to working with people in confidence. Um, they are smart places and they are the relevant party <laughs> yeah. in terms of who to reach out to, which isn't to say that, you know, that might not, that might result in reaching out to journalists mm -hmm. afterwards, but uh, strategy is immensely important with press. And by no means do I claim that I'm good at it, but mm. I understand that it's important. And you know, going through media training, uh, um, recognizing that you know when you speak to the press, you probably want to try and speak to m multiple people in a smart way. Mm -hmm. um, th these are all things that um, that you will only learn if you you. Um, don't just immediately contact one reporter and just you know kind of fire and forget yeah. from there yeah awesome 
Thank you so much for your time. Uh, yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, so I hope to be able to say a lot more on maybe more concrete action mm -hmm. and uh, space that I may be able to provide to, to ease uh, these sorts of processes mm -hmm. in the future. Because uh, I think right now, you know, there are organizations like the Signals Network uh, that, are, that are trying to set up sort of the full um, protection mechanism, if you will, and strategy for whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. There are places like human rights organizations. Uh, it would be great <laughs> if, uh, if there were combinations in the tech industry of, of these different expertise to, uh, to both protect and enable yeah. uh, tech workers with uh, serious uh, ethical and human rights concerns. Nice. Thanks. Super. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. So in reference to the encryption dilemma that um, Snowden was talking about earlier in his opening talk, and there was a question about that. Um, so there's this conflict that you're saying about um, maybe these are useful things for the government to do to get information from our conversations, uh, but also it's a battle um, against like our right to freedom of speech or privacy, Absolutely. yeah, and, and all that sort of stuff. And I guess it is how do you find a kind of a balance with that? Because that's really really tricky, and that's you know I kind of wince when I'm saying is that there's positives about this data being accessible. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I guess, you know, for me, that I don't have anything to hide, but it's it's about it's human rights and it's about my information. But yeah. also, I live in a big city, and there's something about, sort of, I guess, this information being used for protection as well. Yeah. And that's that makes me feel quite uncomfortable, but. So, I mean, I, d I don't know where to go, but it's about yeah. how do you find a balance between that and something that I guess will appease people but not be abused. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I guess it's also the other dilemma of, you know, because I, I did think when that Cambridge Analytica thing, I thought I'm just going to come on Facebook. Yeah. Um, more in dispute as much as anything. Mm. Um, and have you? No, no, but I hardly use it. But still, yeah. it's kind of like just shoving loads of stuff in my face every yeah. time I go on it. But I mean, what was the impetus to stay on Facebook, given that? Uh, because I have friends that I don't see that I've met through travelling yeah. the world that I wouldn't have contact with probably otherwise. Yeah. I'm not likely. It's really nice to kind of be reminded of something. Mean, this is really it sounds so trivial that someone's birthday, you know, of a person that I met in a bank in Venezuela in I don't know 2010 or something that we just had this. It's just yeah. those. That's face. That's what Facebook is for me really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I guess it is about. I mean, I know the whole echo chamber thing, but it is. It's quite nice for people I respect that are maybe involved in politics that are friends of mine that I don't see regularly and to yeah. kind of get a sense of what you know their views on things that's important for me but then obviously from that yeah um, that's the whole thing it's not getting you're not getting kind of a balance digressing slightly but yeah. the kind of the social media thing a lot of kind of my work with clients is about how that impacts on their mood so actually yeah. to really cut that down has a positive impact on people's yeah. general sense of well-being yes indeed it must be a cause of a lot of the, the people's anxiety absolutely yeah. I mean if you kind of want to yeah it's just yeah. it's kind of what people you know it's the whole thing the way they want to be portrayed and yeah. a wonderful happy life Okay. So you're saying that the ICO has this framework that they're building to recommend um, how, or like 
for something that you're expecting companies to do as they're working with personal data? Yeah, the, the AI audit framework we're mm. developing should really be a tool that will guide organizations with their compliance to the GDPR. So it's, it's mm. to enable them to actually get data protection right in practice with AI because there's been a lot of talk about how does AI actually interact with the law in practice? Is the law too prescriptive? How, did it, how do you actually do explainability, transparency in these very complex situations? Yeah. So we're actually working with experts, getting a lot of input um, from areas like Alan Turing Institute on the right. transparency aspects, etc. To, to provide a toolkit, which is probably going to have to iterate and develop over time as we learn more. Yeah. But it will also be a baseline for our investigators to use as we start to get complaints about people who've got concerns about how their personal data has been used by companies or, or public sector bodies yeah. uh, with, with AI technologies. But the idea behind it as well is not just to say don't use AI systems with personal data, but it's inevitable it's going to happen. Mm. So how do we actually get, along, get alongside it? Yeah, so at that point you can swoop in and go, well, have you, you done this baseline? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a starting point then for us as an investigation. Yeah. And also it helps the company demonstrate to us perhaps more readily that they've got, they can show us their homework more easily, which makes mm -hmm. the, the world of regulation work more effectively as well. Yeah. Because as a regulator, we're supportive of innovation if it's done in a privacy-friendly way, respecting right. data rights. Yes. Nice. I think yeah. you're all wanted yeah. now. Is that right? Is it giving you a little That's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank okay. you very much. Do you think they should be educated then? Like, or there should be some sort of, like, citizen, you know, yeah, levelling up in that way? Yeah, I think there needs to be a level of education there. Um, mm. that, that isn't happening. I mean, yeah. even still in schools, cold kids don't learn how to code in, in all schools, Some, they're starting to introduce yeah. it I guess, but it's not really coming in fast enough, it should have already been there for, um, you know, the millennial generation if you want yeah, to Yeah, I think, uh, <coughs> I don't know if you're a millennial presumably, but yeah, we kind of, we, we sidestepped all that, right, in, in formal education anyway, it just wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely, yeah, it didn't yeah. even seem like an option really, or why would we want to learn it, we thought that okay, that was for the kind of computer people who were really techie, they're like, yeah. want to study computer mm -hmm. science or something but even even computer science people didn't really understand what it was i think in school so yeah I, and do you think that it, i mean given uh maybe they know something about the technology uh now because they have some of these things in education but you were alluding to the fact that maybe there's a piece missing there about you know maybe the their personal data the personal information or maybe just like their rights which you can like as a citizen not to be snooped on constantly or is there, is there anything else that they need to be taught as well as like basic coding stuff do you think yeah definitely i think i think there's a huge lack of information around human rights in the digital sphere i think it's really relatively new i don't think it's something that most people think about mm -hmm. um uh what rights they have how their rights might be infringed upon um, so I think it's something that there needs to be a lot of education around as well, you know, even the fact that in the EU we have the right to be forgotten, but that's still very much being, being drawn up in terms of how we can use it and, and as it was said in the last yeah. talk as well, in terms of how that's being driven at the moment by kind of people who, you know, maybe PR managers or lawyers and things like that. So um, it's about people kind of taking ownership over that um, and realising what tools are, are out there for them to use, yeah. which at the moment people don't really understand. Yeah, and it's not like um, 
every service has the same way of doing any of this stuff as well, which is difficult. To yeah, there's very little transparency. It's very yeah. opaque if, if they have a post that's taken down or something. People don't really understand how they can appeal. There's not like a hotline, Twitter hotline, you can just call up and say, excuse me, how can I, you know, yeah. do whatever, um, you know, get my account reinstated or whatever. That doesn't really exist. Mm. So that's yeah. So what are you envisioning seeing in these elections? Oh. Or like what, what how does your your um, how does disinformation come into the play with Yeah, it's it's kind of the same framework as the US. Mm-hmm. I mean we're very close and we share a lot of the same ethics and morals yep. to a certain extent. Okay. Um so yeah, it's a, a lot more of freedom of expression. There hasn't been anything like the white paper on Arlen Harms. Right. Not as of yet. I would I don't think that's kind of our culture, you know what yep. I mean? somewhat similar to you know freedom of expression of the state of the states it's pretty mm-hmm. similar um, but we have our own uh, political election campaign similar to kind of that bill yeah. the honest ads act so it's mirroring that um, but whether or not it will actually catch anything is kind of what I'm just kind of waiting and seeing at this okay point. <laughs> and then you can do a moratorium like like a um, yeah. post-mortem sorry yeah after the fact yeah right. exactly yeah. so I mean it's unfortunate my yeah. dissertation is due on the 3rd of September, so right. our election is really until October. Yep. Um, so I'm kind of just hoping I can catch yeah. a little bit of something as things kind of pop up. Yep. So it is nice for me because I'm like, all right, I get to just wait and see what happens yep. with Canada. Um, just because, like I said, things are eventually going to kind of pop up and whether or not yeah. that mechanism, that like reactionary measure is even going to do anything or yeah. you know, to what extent it'll affect that election outcome is yeah. kind of something that's kind of quite interesting to look at. So is it that they, they have some mechanism in place, like, loosely, yeah, it's, it's to similar, combat that sort of it's thing? It's more so that yeah. political ads type of issue, yeah. um, like in the earlier, um, it was the first one, the first talk of today about yeah. banning political ads itself. And for right. me, I'm a human rights person, so I get a little squeamish yeah. um, on stuff like that, more so just because obviously expression is everything and anything, right. um, to an extent, obviously. Uh, there's obviously restrictions and limitations, so kind yeah. of framing these everyday issues into a human rights mm. framework is quite interesting. Um, for me, because the practicality of things, it's quite interesting to see if it can fit that mold. Yeah. Uh, especially with misinformation with companies and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's just interesting to see if companies can even implement such narrow um, restrictions with you know inciting violence and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Because they're really, they aren't bound by anything. You know what I mean? Like there is no... There's guiding principles yeah, um, yeah. for businesses uh, to respect human rights. So these are like social platforms, that sort yeah, of thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's not really, you know, that kind mm. of mechanism that we have in place, like with states and countries that yeah. they sign up to things. But it's kind of a quite interesting time now where, you know, we have companies that are bigger than countries themselves, right? Yeah. So that's kind of the interesting pivotal point we're at right yeah. now with kind of respecting human rights and still finding a balance. Yeah. With stuff. Yeah. yeah. And what do you think your opinion on how one should do that well? <laughs> like, is there like an answer there? I don't know. That's the thing that's quite interesting right now is I think it's all like trial and error. Mm. Um, and I think it's difficult to say because, you know, a lot of companies like Facebook, you know, try to just be so reactionary to things. Yeah. Um, and I think the importance of kind of collaborating between different intersections of society, like yeah. we need to have those lawyers in place looking over these algorithms, looking over the platforms and how they do right. things. Because 
it's with, without those people that yeah. that piece is missing from that puzzle. So lawyers looking at the implementation. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm, I'm from the implementation yeah. side as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So do you think those people would have to be upskilled almost yeah. in the technology side as well? Yeah, I think that there needs to be, like I said, a lot more like collaboration. Right. Just okay. within the intersects, because yeah. like this is not that it's so new, because obviously it's not. But the issues of today are just so fresh, and I think we just kind of need to come together and just see yeah. what happens. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it necessarily should be so reactionary that like, oh yeah, this happened, so like we're gonna go do this, and mm -hmm. who knows about what this will happen or what the consequences of that will be. Yeah. Um, because the issues of unintended consequences are terrifying, right? Um, we really don't know where what yeah, will happen yeah. with them. It, so it sounds like. It's, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. like you're coming at it from uh, people putting up legitimate stuff yeah. and being, making sure those legitimate stuff have um, some sort of bar. Like, yeah. you know, if it's not saying the right kinds of things, they will be taken down. And yeah. Would, um, do you have any kind of opinion about the fake news, like created maybe malicious things? Yeah, so I mean, it, I mean, within the human rights framework, like those yeah. are something that will get caught and filtered out. Again, okay. I, I don't know to what extent how we make companies outwardly and explicitly accountable to those standards, yep. um, which is very difficult, obviously, because there's not really a consent. There's a lot of, you know, mm. legality issues there, um, but, you know, they have guiding principles on respecting human rights. Um, I mean, they're symbolic. Yeah. They don't really mean much of anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, within, within Article 19 of uh, Civil Political yep. Rights Convention, yep. uh, Covenant rather, um, you know, there are those restrictions that fall and there are those tests that need to be met. So mm. I think there's also the, the possibility of having, you know, that, that rule of law aspect in this, uh, in the way in which we kind of see information. Yep. And we need like, I don't know what that would look like and I'm so interested in it, mm. like regarding case law yeah. about issues um, like that, just because like it is great for lawyers as we kind of see things. We're like, okay, mm. this worked, this didn't, we kind of know what will necessarily happen in this respect. but. Yep. You know, we don't have court systems that, you know, rule out information or, you know, so it's, it's, it's right. hard to kind of see what that yeah. would look like, especially just on the grand scale of information yeah. uh, and that we have access to. And so there's a fine line, obviously, between that censorship and that seeking truth and, you know, whose truth. Yes, um, yeah, subjective truth. Like, yeah, yeah, so it's so, like, there's so many little things that are just, you mm -hmm. know, just really problematic and huge. So these are the issues that I face when I'm sitting there yeah. um, because there's so many different paths to go and there's so much, yeah. so much more questions than there are answers yes. right now. So yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> I don't envy you. Yeah, no, not at all. I'm still like, I don't know what I'm doing. I guess. Um, well, it's called Values and Ethics and Responsible Technology in Europe. And so yep. the main goal was to investigate like how people developing connected technologies uh, might be able to think about and act on kind of, uh, you know, their own ethical principles. And also to develop a privacy and ethical and social impact assessment tool that would perhaps change the way that developers were able to act and mm -hmm. kind of shift around the decision-making context. So there's three parts 
parts. There's understanding how people are actually building connected technologies and the yeah. role ethics plays in that. The second part is developing this really big kind of high-level um, ethical and social impact assessment frame. And the third part is actually developing usable tools, which is everything from stuff on a website to like a kind of facilitation process to enable people to change the way that they're working in relation to ethical decisions. Yeah, and this and this is focused on people making connected devices specifically, or can it be quite broad and useful in, in other contexts? Well, the project was very focused. We wanted yeah. to focus on small companies and startups, particularly startups and small um, SMEs, uh, who were working in the connected devices field because that was something that was understudied. You know, we've all we all kind of know more or less what Google. Uh, is doing in you know and Amazon are doing in relation to connected devices we don't know so much what smaller companies are doing and we had a notion that maybe there was a different space of play right if you're in a small company maybe you can make a different decision and use you know ethics or privacy as your USP so we thought that's cool but obviously like the you know the ethical impact assessments and these decision-making tools could be used all over the place yeah um, so, so what did you make in the end? Did you did you get to an answer? Or well, we know an awful lot about how people work in small small organizations, and we also know that there's a ton of pressures on small organizations. So, one of the things we learned, and I'm at the London School of Economics, and I've been working primarily on the team that studied these small organizations and spent time with developers of connected devices. What we found was that it's often very difficult to put your values into practice. And so we found kind of three different ways that people engage with ethics. There's like people who really want to do ethics. They work on tech for good. They're going to you know, be very um, idealist about this. There's also people who are really pragmatic. And this is, tends to be people who are thinking about, well, ethics are really only compliance. So I've got to comply with the GDPR. So I guess I better think about ethics. The, this group of people is often very happy that some ethics researchers turned up because they're like, oh, I should be thinking about this. Right. I haven't, I haven't, you know, I haven't done this. So there's now, an awareness there. Yeah. And then there's a kind of disengaged group that's like, this is important, but I'm not going to do it or I can't do it. It's almost tends towards apathy. Uh, and I think that's actually very important in this space is that, you know, we're, we're now in a space where there's a huge conversation about ethics, but there's a lot of people who are working on connected technologies who are still very disengaged from the capacity to ask these questions and definitely the capacity to act on them. So um, Virtue is a complicated project because it, um, it spans uh, four countries and six organizations, four universities, the Open Rights Group, and uh, the Copenhagen Institute for Interaction Design. We also span five different disciplines, and we all had to figure out how to work together. Um, but here around the table, you also have uh, Thomas Hamburg and uh, Robin Cranenberg, uh, both of whom have become part of an aspect of the project that uh, we're doing, which was a design challenge, and the final here was today. And Thomas's concept was the winner, and Rob was one of our judges. Um, with the project itself, we had to bring together people that could learn and understand what's going on in among the designers and developers of IoT. What does IoT mean? What, what do we mean by ethics and responsibility? How are these performed? How are these enacted? We also needed, we couldn't have um, people doing that kind of work everywhere in Europe. But we also needed some way of really looking about what's going on online. And so we have a team that uh, was looking at social media and mining social media and trying to understand uh, where and how and what kinds of different uh, conversations happen. 
there's a lot of legal structures that are coming into play here with GDPR, especially data protection. And so we had a legal team that uh, thought about how might you do an impact assessment differently? How might you expand it beyond just privacy and think about social, ethical aspects of it where very clearly certain things can be legal but they don't necessarily but they're not necessarily ethical mm. and so what do you do in this space when um, what happens with technologies and what happens with technology development isn't covered by law there's lots of gray areas and how do you engage with that um, at the same time have uh, open rights group which is an advocacy and policy organization that can take some of the theoretical and some of the conceptual ideas and try to translate them to be more understandable and kind of closer to the ground, closer to what's actually happening and what might be relevant to people that are in this. And we have a design component and in in Copenhagen Institute of Interaction Design, which is taking all of this knowledge and trying to translate it into the tools that might be useful for people that actually do the design and development. So have you ever seen an impact assessment? It's a really long list of questions. And if you're a designer or a developer, looking at that really long list of questions can be kind of soul-destroying. Um, so what, what, what are you going to do? Yeah. Sit there and answer questions? How is that going to be helpful? Eventually, in the end, you kind of have to build. So we try to figure out how do you build to, how you build tools that might actually be useful, living things that can be part of the design process and not just a set of questions that you answer once. Yeah. and how you build then bring that all together and it's been a really long process um, and we're just now at the point it took us two and a half years to get to the point where we're finally building and testing prototypes and we should be able to build and flesh out the tools um, early this fall and we will have a full launch of our tool set in December so it's, this is a really exciting time and you had this uh, design competition as well right yeah so what was the winning design do you mind could you talk about that yeah um, I tried to build a system that lets household chores draw attention to themselves so uh, if I didn't uh, empty the trash for a while I get notified that I should do it but my partner who does it all the time doesn't get notified so the domestic AI uh, takes over this this task to to fairly distribute the chores in the household Hi and welcome to the end of the podcast thanks again for listening to this bonus episode on the Open Rights Group conference I stopped recording there and you can find the rest of that interview with Virtue or Virtue on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. We discuss more of the implications surrounding that winning IoT solution and then it takes a bit of a turn and we start talking about extreme openness for data feeds and how that would impact society. So check that out. Uh, the full um, interview will be on the Patreon. And we'll be releasing the next episode very, very soon with Rob, so stay tuned for that. And thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.